Well, this morning as we pick up our study in 1 Corinthians, we're wrapping up a, a lengthy section in which Paul has been talking about idol meat. Starting in chapter 10 all the way through chapter 11, verse 1, Paul has been trying to show us what does it look like for Christians to be mindful of other believers who have strict consciences. How do we deal with a culture that, that worships different than us? And this morning, Paul kind of is going to maybe summarize. He's going to kind of pick up the crumbs of anything he's left over in his argument because it has been a number of chapters in which he's talked about this. And, and this morning, I'm, I'm sure as, as we begin, you have all heard the expression that, that just because it's legal doesn't mean that it's right. That just because something is not technically speaking a crime or has a, a law code connected to it, doesn't mean that it's morally or ethically okay to do. Now, it might not be a crime to have an extramarital affair, but that doesn't mean that it's a right. It might not be wrong in the eyes of the law to express hate for certain racial groups, but that doesn't mean that it's ethically or morally okay. And just because it's legal to lie to your parents or lie to your employer doesn't mean you should. You can visit another country where prostitution is legal. Doesn't mean that it's upbuilding or good. And so that, that type of principle, that just because something is not illegal doesn't mean that it's good, is, is really etched into these lasting principles that Paul gives us here at the end of chapter 10 into the first verse of chapter 11. The idea is, is that just because I am able to do something doesn't mean that I should. Or as Paul would say in chapter 10, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Not all things are helpful. So we live in a culture in which you could say maybe the moral compass of our culture the compass that points us north is a compass that would say, prioritize your freedoms, your comfort, your desires. That, 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 that what, what is morally the best for you is, is to you do you. And if that happens to include other people's great, but really the, the true north star of our culture doesn't take into consideration what is good for others. Primarily, it takes into consideration what is good for you. And so, if you think about a compass, I don't know, I was in Cub Scouts at one point, and I think we talked about compasses. But sometimes a compass can get off a little bit. And so, as we are just ingrained in this culture, presume with me a moment that our, our compasses are maybe just one degree off north. If you follow that compass long enough, eventually you will find yourself to be miles apart from true north. And so if our compass is, is at any time leading us to prioritize what is good for us, to prioritize, well, technically speaking, the Bible doesn't say anything about gambling. Well, technically speaking, the Bible doesn't say anything about this or that. Eventually, if we, if we go down that path, we will find ourselves to be miles apart from what it actually looks like 
to be someone who follows the Lord Jesus. And so really this morning, what, what Paul is wanting to do is helping these Corinthian believers to kind of establish that, that new north. What is the ruling principle? What is the north on the compass for Christians? Because these Corinthian believers were, were tempted to go along with Corinthian culture. Corinthian culture wasn't much different than America that said, prioritize what is good for you. Prioritize what is helpful, not for the greater community, but for your own pleasure and comfort. And so Paul here, in, like I said, in chapters 8, 9, and 10, has made a long argument about why Christians should not eat meat sacrificed to idols when that meat is being offered in a pagan worship service. He says if you're going to these temples, the temple of Zeus or the, the temple of Hermes, and you're eating this meat, you are engaging in idolatry. Flee from idolatry. It is wrong. But at the same time, Paul wants to be a little careful to not come across as pharisaical. He, he doesn't want us to think that we need to go full teetotal. And that, does that mean we can never eat meat at all? And Paul here again in chapter 10 wants to kind of give a few little extra pieces of information, some extra maybe scenarios that we find ourselves in, and give us some lasting principles. And so if I can just summarize, here's really Paul's kind of point here this morning. He, he wants... Instead of just legislating how to deal with tricky cultural situations about our freedoms and rights, he gives them a true North Star. And for a Christian, here it is. Living for the glory of God. The, the, the true North Star of our lives is those who follow Christ. The true North on the compass is does this bring glory and honor to God? And we have to ask ourselves a moment, what does that look like? I think we'll all agree that, that the glory of God at, at times kind of becomes a Christian cliche. What does it actually mean to, 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 to give God glory? Does it mean that after I throw the game-winning touchdown, I point up at the sky to the big man upstairs? Does that mean when I walk in and the, the teacher forgot to, you know, collect the homework that I didn't do, I say, glory be to God? Yeah, it could. But Paul wants to be a little bit more concrete, more than typically we are when we refer to the glory of God. And really what Paul does is he, he, he blends these ideas together that, that, that living for the glory of God is always tied to seeking the good of others spiritually. And so that the North Star of a Christian's life, and here's my main point for the sermon, is that we are to glorify God by aiming to build others up spiritually. We are to be the type of people who are prioritizing the good and well-being of others in order that we may give praise and glory to our God. And so this is what the Corinthian believers needed to hear. Because instead of prioritizing God's glory, they prioritized their own. And so Paul here is helping us to avoid their practice. And so what I'd like to do for us is to break this up into two headings. Paul gives a lot of different principles in this passage. And, and what we'll see in the first point is Paul gives a few examples. And the second point, Paul gives some lasting kind of things for us to put our hats on as we conclude this discussion about meat being offered to idols. And so the, the first heading I'd like us to consider these verses is simply this, protect your Christian witness. 
As we aim to glorify God, as we aim to build others up spiritually, Paul says, living in a culture in which people prioritize their own freedoms and rights, you need to be a Christian who protects your Christian witness. Let's consider the passage now, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informs you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because that for which I give thanks. So in these verses, what I'm arguing is that Paul is, is trying to help Christians think through some of these issues about meat idol as it relates to unbelievers. So at this point, I think Paul is, is shifting topics a little bit to say, okay, I don't want you to think that you can't ever eat meat, but there are still a few circumstances and situations you will find yourself in. So let me help you flush that out a little bit more. And he begins by, by quoting the Corinthians. If you notice that first verse in 23, in parentheses, it says, all things are lawful. This is the, the Christian who says, well, technically speaking, the Bible never says I can't do it. Technically speaking, I have freedom. Technically speaking, I'm not the legalist like you. I can just do whatever I want. The, the, the commands don't really apply to me the way they apply to you. And Paul says, yeah, technically speaking, yeah. Everything is permissible. But not everything is beneficial. Not everything builds up. And so an observation we have to make about the Corinthians is they really struggled with this spiritual pride. They had this spiritual superior complex where, where they thought because of their spiritual knowledge, because of their spiritual gifts, that they were kind of above everyone else. And, and Paul has been increasingly showing them the true spiritual person is not the person who sues other Christians, but it's the one who reconciles. The, the true spiritual person doesn't abstain from the good gifts, but enjoys them. The, the true spiritual person is not who you're committed to, but being committed to Christ. And, and even here, Paul is trying to tell them, if, if you are truly spiritual, what you are concerned about is not what you can do, but, but here's what the true spiritual person is concerned about. Is this loving? Is this loving? And so if you notice, Paul is actually just summarizing, reteaching what he already said in chapter 8. Look, if you look down in your Bibles, chapter 8, verse 1, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Paul doesn't want a group of Christians who are only thinking about what is good for them, but he wants those who are truly filled by the Spirit who know 
That ultimately our aim is not, not what, what is good for me, but what is good for others, to building people up. And so he gives the principle in 24. Here's really the principle of this first point. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And one thing I really appreciate about the principle that Paul gives here is the freedom it allows Christians to have. He doesn't give a long list of legislation or rules. He says, you need to have this type of principle that you are seeking the good of your neighbor. And, and I'll argue here in a moment that Paul here is not primarily thinking of random acts of kindness, like holding the door open for someone or being, you know, a good tipper at a restaurant, although those are things I would encourage you to do. But Paul is thinking about how can we help others grow spiritually. And, and the freedom that brings leads Paul to the next verse saying, have freedom to enjoy what God has given you. Don't be afraid that just because you're not allowed to eat meat over here in the temples that, that you can't necessarily enjoy good gifts elsewhere. And I think to really understand what Paul is saying here in verses 24 through 26, we need to kind of go back into Corinth and understand what the culture was like. Everyone knew that, that these, these animals would first, they would go to the temples of these pagan gods, and there there would be this worship service, and they would slain this animal on the altar, and some of the meat would be taken and prepared and given to all of those who are engaging in that cultic worship service. But then most of it would be carted away to be sold in the open market. Everyone in Corinth knew that most of the meat hanging on those stalls, you know, if you have Corinthian Beef Co., 90% of the beef sold in that store would have been previously given to some pagan god. And so you, you might have interpreted Paul saying, well, don't eat meat offered to idols. And you're thinking like, well, man, that sounds like I can't eat anything at all. Paul says no. Verse 25, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any ground on, the, on conscience. And he quotes here Psalm 24. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And what's a little bit ironic about this passage, it's, it's the Jews who would typically quote Psalm 24 before they ate something. And, and the Jews were the people who were overly scrupulous about knowing where their food came from. The Jews were always making sure that, that, that the food they were about to partake in was kosher. And, and kind of Paul's advice, if I can summarize it, he's saying, don't ask questions. Don't, don't be overly conscious about, about what you're going to eat. Just, just enjoy it. If it's out there for sale, grab it, take it home, saute it, stick it in a stew, and enjoy. I watched Lord of the Rings recently, so I don't know if any of you caught that reference. But here, here, Here's the point Paul is making. Ultimately, it's the venue, not the menu, that matters. If you are in a venue in which there is Greek God worshiping happening, don't give in. But elsewhere, we need to enjoy the good gifts that God has given us. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, we read that Paul says to Timothy, There will be those who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything Created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy 
by the word of God and prayer. All of the wonderful blessings we have are to be received with thanksgiving, Paul says. You know, in the health and fitness culture, it seems like we're always being told, this food is good, that food is bad. Don't eat this because of this. Don't eat that because of that. And I'm certainly not arguing that you shouldn't be mindful. You should be healthy, of course. But I I think Paul wants us to, to recognize, like, we should enjoy and have the freedom to, to, to go and to, to eat whatever we want. To not overindulge, but, but to enjoy good gifts. And so Paul now actually switched to another situation, though. He says in verse 27, if, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Now, again, any time you went to a pagan believer's house, you would have assumed that the meat being offered to you was previously offered to some idol. And so some of his readers might have thought, well, I can't go and have a dinner party because I know that the meat going to be offered to me was given to an idol. And Paul says again, stop asking so many questions. Just go and enjoy. Don't risk being an offense to your host. But then he kind of raises another situation here. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of one who informs you. Now Paul here is really trying to encourage us that we don't need to be the people who are overly scrupulous about the things we enjoy and the things that we buy. At the same time, there are certain situations in which we should be willing to forego certain freedoms and rights for the sake of of unbelievers. Paul here might be thinking of a Corinthian believer, maybe they're on their normal route and they decide, you know, the Isthmian games are on tonight, so I'm going to stop at, you know, Korean Beef Co. I'm going to pick up my favorites, you know, sirloin steaks, and, and he's about to buy the food, and maybe, maybe the butcher says, oh, hey, you're a Christian, right? Don't you know that this meat was offered to idols recently? Well, in that situation, Paul says, for the sake of that person's conscience, don't eat it. You know, say, oh, do you have any meat that wasn't offered to Zeus? Maybe I can buy that. Because what Paul is worried about is that butcher, if you just say, oh, it's fine. Don't you know everything in the the earth is the Lord's? And you quote Psalm 24 at him and you go and eat it. That butcher might think, huh, I guess... Worshiping pagan gods is okay because this Christian seems fine with it. Or say you're at the dinner party and, and your host says, oh, by the way, I know you're a Christian, but are you okay with the fact that this was offered to an idol? Paul says in that situation, just say, oh, hey, I really appreciate what you made, but I'm going to probably abstain. Because if you indulge, that person may now think, ah, see, I knew all of you Christians were hypocrites. You say you worship the one God only, but here you are eating meat offered to other gods. And so Paul here, he he wants them to know, yes, we, we should have the principle of enjoying the good gifts that God has given us, but at times we need to be protective of our Christian witness. We need to be willing to say, for the sake of others, I don't want to put myself in a position in which I can become the source of condemnation for the gospel. Now, I don't really know all the examples of which, how this would play out in modern culture, but imagine you were invited to a Christmas party coming up 
I'll maybe use myself for an example, and someone offers me a lovely beverage called eggnog. And right before they hand it to me, they say, oh, wait, you're a pastor, and, you know, we really wanted to make this drink jolly, so we added a little bit of, you know, you know, some, uh, what are you, a bourbon in rum or something in eggnog? I don't know. Well, in that situation, I, I have a decision to make. I can feel out the context of who I'm with and the situation and say, well, I, I'll, I think it's probably fine. Don't worry. Christians can drink alcohol. Or, or I could say, you know what? I have an opportunity right now to kind of let this person know that, that I am going to be consistent. And maybe I'll say, I'll just take the regular eggnog. That's all right. Dairy gold is perfect. Right? There are so many ways at which this can look, but the timeless principle that I think Paul is trying to get us to think about is, is simply this, that as Christians, we need to be people who are in the world, we need to accept the dinner invitations, accept the holiday parties, but we shouldn't be of the world. We should maintain enough Christian distinctiveness in which that we would never make it hard for someone to think well of the faith that we claim. So in many ways, the point that Paul is making in these verses is what he says in Romans 14, 16. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. You go on to say, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so Paul wants Christians to be mindful of our Christian witness. And I'll just, can I just say, we live in an increasingly secular culture. At times, it's hard to know what, what to do and what not to do. And should I engage in this? Should I not? How do I, you know, enjoy the good gifts that God has given us? And, and I think that's maybe a point of application I want to make. You know, last week we talked about idolatry. And, and you know, we need to be mindful of the idolatry and, and be warned of its disastrous effects. But at the same time, we can enjoy the good things that God has given us. Having a bank account isn't bad. Enjoying video games or TV or football, those are great recreations that we can be a part of. But at the same time, we need to be willing to forgo certain rights and freedoms and abstain if it means that I can protect my Christian witness and make the gospel more compelling. Because as Jesus would teach his disciples, we are to be the salt and the light of the world. A city on a hill that when people see our good deeds, they may glorify our Father who is in heaven. And so to kind of flush this out a little bit more, Paul kind of ends this whole discussion by giving us three principles. And if there wasn't enough practical kind of illustrations or or application, these next three principles, I think, are really going to flush out Paul's first point. And so the second point is simply this, that we need to be people, as we are glorifying God, who pursue an others-focused life. So first, we protect our Christian witness, but second, Paul would say, pursue an others-focused life. Let's look down at the passage again, chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. 
Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now Paul here in these four verses gives three wonderful principles. I think every single one of these points that Paul makes can be their own sermon. And in fact, I would, I would love to do that, but I'm actually going to just go briefly over these three, these three principles. But if you remember, Paul here is just kind of summarizing everything he's been saying in chapters 8, 9, and 10. And so the, the first principle Paul says in verse 31 is glorify God in all that you do. Glorify God in all that you do. How, how do you know how to interact with an increasingly secular culture who wants nothing to do with God? How do you know when you're seeking your own advantage over your brothers and sisters? How do you know when you're insisting on your own privileges? How do you navigate all these things? Paul says the true north star of your life is glorify your God. And by that, what I think he means is live in such a way that it encourages people to bring praise to God. Not, not simply just giving him thanks after something, but, but living in such a way that other people may want to also honor Christ. And so as Pastor Carl referenced for us in, in the call to worship in Romans 12, Paul would say the response to the salvation we have in Christ is we are to be people who are living sacrifices. That worship is not just the time on Sunday morning. Worship is a lifestyle. That we can literally, as what Paul says, Glorify God in all that we do. So Paul says eating and drinking. It's not merely just to fuel your body. It's an opportunity to bring praise and glory to God. And you should do this as you are thinking about all of these tricky, you know, situations that you're going to find yourself in with, with idol worship and unbelievers and even believers with weak consciences. When you're not sure what to do, remember, what does it look like to glorify God in this situation? And so Paul says, again, everything you do, the, the, you know, the, the famous Westminster Catechism, what is the chief end of man? What is the reason why you were made? Why were you saved from your sins? Gloriously to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So even when you are suffering in this life, you can steward that suffering in such a way that you bring glory to your heavenly Father. In your death, you can glorify God. In your recreation, in all of the hobbies and trips and homes that you have, you can glorify God. In your interpersonal relationships, glorify the God who has made you. That is the reason why we are here to, to reflect who God is, to, to give him the glory due to his name. And so at times, the way we glorify God is by enjoying good things. And other times, we glorify God by abstaining from things. This last calendar year in January, I had the opportunity to go to Uganda with one of our missionaries, Eric Bells. And we had just had lunch, a late lunch, I think it was our first day there, and, and we made this impromptu stop at a pastor's house. So I had, I had a full tummy already. And we sat down, and you know, we were the honored guests of the home. And 
at the end of this conversation, about to get in the car, and they said, oh, wait, we, we need to eat before you go. Okay. That wasn't communicated to me somehow. I got lost through translation. And so we sit down, and there's a plate of rice for probably 10 people that was given just for me. And then there was a plate of, of I don't know what it was, liver and kidney. Um, and I have horror stories of trying to eat this as a kid. And I was with Eric Bells, and I remember, like, if you could read my eyes, help me, please. And I looked at all this food and knew that it was a sacrifice for them. And to the glory of God, I ate as much of that food as I could, and I got a master at hiding food for the sake of these people, though. I'm not going to lie, if one of you asked me to your house and you gave me that, I might risk offending you. <laughs> but, but in that situation, I felt the glory of God was best demonstrated by, by willing to eat that food that I didn't want to eat. Many of you know that my father-in-law passed away a few months ago, and his death was sudden, but he had time to plan his, his funeral, his memorial. And the thing that he kept saying is, I don't want it to be about me. I want it to be about the Lord. And he planned his whole service in mind of his family that they may hear the gospel, that God would be praised even in his death. And friends, this is, this is what God has called us to, those of us who have received such a great salvation. May, may we honor God by living lives in full surrender and total worship, giving him glory, not just on a Sunday morning, but in all that we do. Second principle, Paul says in verses 32 to 33 is don't cause extra offense to the gospel. Allow me to read these verses one more time. He says in verse 32, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Now, when Paul says that he tries to please everyone, he is not thinking of being a man-pleaser. He does not do all this work in order to gain the approval and the admiration of men, but, but really what he is saying is, I do everything that I possibly can in order to make it easy for people to hear and to respond to the gospel. So Paul wants to be a type of person who has that animating spirit of Christ. That whatever it is he can sacrifice to see others come to the gospel, he's going to do it. And so this is why it's very interesting. In 1 Corinthians, if you think back to the first chapter, Paul says this in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we, preaching Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, what's interesting about the Apostle Paul is he is completely fine with people being offended and being turned off by the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel, Paul realizes, it's going to have a binary effect. Some people hear the gospel and they think, life. And others hear it and they think, what utter foolishness. But Paul's okay with that. But what Paul is not okay with 
Is that in any way that his life would be hard for people to hear and to respond to the message? He, he wants to make sure that, that God's glory is tantamount to his own preferences and rights. That he wants to see God's glory first. And this is why Paul puts God's glory before his own reputation, before his own comfort. He puts God's glory before even being married or having children. He puts God's glory above him even earning a wage and working. Paul puts God's glory above eating and drinking. And so this is why, again, I'll say, he is happy with people being put off by the gospel, but he is not happy for them to be put off by his conduct, so that in every way he seeks not my own good, but the good of many, that they may be saved. And so what's really important to know about these verses about how he ties together the glory of God and seeking the well-being of others, is that, that living for God always comes into the context of doing what is spiritually good for others. Paul, while on trial before Felix in Acts 24, would say this, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. And so seeking the glory of God is always tied to seeking the good of others. So if you were taking part in what God has given you, if you were enjoying a good gift that God has, give him thanks. If you are abstaining from it, do it out of the desire that other people may not stumble. Whether, the, the, whether that be unbelievers or believers. So if you're cooking for a Muslim, go to the Halal store. If you're in a culture where alcohol is frowned upon, go teetotal. If your friend becomes a vegetarian, learn some new recipes for them. Do whatever you can in order to not be a stumbling block. And so how about you? What are the ways in which you are willing to disadvantage yourself in order to make it easier for someone to hear the gospel? for maybe a brother or sister to be helped spiritually. Let us help ensure that if people have problems with the faith, that the problems are with our message and not with us. Amen? And so if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I am very glad that you are here. As Christians, we, we just want to let you know of how much Jesus has changed our life. In many ways, Jesus has flipped our lives completely upside down. And I would argue that the only thing that really makes a Christian different than everyone else is Christians are those who have recognized and have repented from living for their own glory instead of the glory of God. And so if you're here this morning and you're unsure about Jesus and you're unsure about what it looks like to live for God's glory, we just want you to know that, that God made you, he loves you, he desires for you to follow him, to walk in his ways, to live a life that is for his glory and ultimately for our good. But sadly, we don't always live for this God. Instead of bringing praise to our creator, we actually desire to do things our own way, which, which is what the Bible describes as sin. 
And because of our sin, we deserve and we incur God's judgment. But the God in whom we has made us and whom we desire to serve and love is a God of grace, love, and mercy, who in the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, he came to this world. He died for our sins on the cross to forgive us of all of the times that we have lived for our own glory. And now he has given us his spirit that we can be the people who now learn to love to live for God's glory. No Christian in this room does it perfectly. But if you're here this morning and you want to hear more, we encourage you to come talk to me, Pastor Carr, one of the elders, or, or any person here who's a member of this church. That you may know what it looks like to be a Christian. And so lastly, the last principle Paul gives us in, in chapter 11, verse 1, that the summary of everything he's been saying is simply this. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So imitate those who follow Christ. Now, it, this verse may sound very self-important. It might even sound a little prideful. But I, th I think Paul is saying something here that we all know intuitively. None of us follow ideas. We follow people. You could tell people all day long the principles and the truths and the, and the promises of God, but we need real-life examples. So do me a favor. Would you turn your Bibles over a few pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 4? Paul here wants the Corinthians to, to know that he has a life worth imitating. And so in chapter 4, verse 9, we're kind of re-going over some of these things. He's talking about him as apostles. And verse 9, he says this, For I think that God has exhibited us all apostles, last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we are in disrepute. Verse 11. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst, and we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Now look down, look down at verse 16. It says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. So that whole long list... That sounds like, oh, that sounds like the job description of an apostle. To be the refuse of all things. To suffer. And Paul says, no. Imitate us. And the reason why Paul can say that in chapter 4, and the reason why he can say it in chapter 11, is because Paul has the animating spirit of Christ. In which Paul is saying although not perfectly, I am someone who is living like Christ did. I am living like someone Christ would look like. And so, friends, we don't follow ideas, we follow people. There's a sense if you're a Christian here this morning, you are a mini Christ. You represent Jesus. Many of you, you might be the only Christian in your neighborhood or in your workforce. For some of you, sadly speaking, you might be the only Christian that some people might ever meaningfully engage with. And, and Paul says, we all need to have someone that we both imitate and recognize that we need to be imitators. 
We need to be the type of people in which people, when they look at us, they don't see the normal custom of the world living for our own interests and desires. But rather we live like Christ, who disadvantaged himself for the sake of others. Now technically speaking, all of us as Christians in this room are, are the, maybe the imitators of the war, for the world. But for the church at large, the church maybe institutionally, the actual official imitators, the examples of the faith, Paul says, are the elders. In a sense, we all imitate Christ, but, but the, the real strong endorsing person, that if someone walks into this church and says, show me, what does a Christian look like? Elders are to be the ones in which the church formally endorses and says, if you follow this man's example and what he teaches, although he will not do it perfectly, amen, you will have a good example of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Which is why all, almost all of the qualifications relating to being an elder deal with character. And so we need imitators. And having an imitator means we, we need to have some close proximity with people. And more than this, we also need to imitate Christ to others. And so consider what Paul says, be imitators of me. Well, what exactly is he telling them to do? Well, let's consider what Paul has kind of spoken about in chapters 8, 9, and 10. Paul says, imitate me as I use my knowledge not to get my own way but to build others up. Paul says, be like me, imitate me, where I refuse my rights and my freedoms in order that I may win others with the gospel. Be like me, who is a runner, running for the prize, who disciplines his body. Be like me, someone who responds to the warnings and flees from sexual morality and idolatry. Be like me as I follow Christ. So everything in Paul says in 8, 9, and 10 flows right back to the example of Christ. That Christ gave his life for the sake of others by bearing the curse of sin in our place. That Christ disadvantaged himself and did not seek his own interest but the interest of others. That Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Oh, but dear Christian, Christ didn't just do these things for others. He did it for you. Christ gave up his life for your sake by bearing the curse of sin in your place. Christ disadvantaged himself and did not seek his own interest, but he sought your interest and good. Jesus Christ came to seek and to save you personally. And so may this knowledge of God's great love for us in Christ transform us to be a people who are zealous to see the glory of God grow. That we would both enjoy this God and the wonder that he is and that we would seek in every way to help others be built up spiritually, that they may also glorify the great God who has saved us and who has made us. And so just because the Bible 
doesn't say that we can't do something. Just because the Bible isn't very clear on every situational ethic that we may have, we need to understand that not everything is always beneficial. As Christians, our true north star, the compass of our life, is to seek the glory of God. That when we love the Lord and desire to see his name magnified, we can be like Paul, who imitated Christ, working in him in such a way that he was mindful of his Christian witness and that he sought a life in which he was focused on others. And so church, may we be a church that is in love and that is zealous to seeing the glory of God grow as we come week in and week out and worship him for who he has revealed himself in Christ. May we be a type of church that shows this type of love of Christ in which we disadvantage ourselves for the sake of others. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Father, we want to thank you for the many wonderful blessings we have in Christ. Lord, we, we ask for your grace. God, oh, for grace to trust you more. God, we ask, we ask for grace that as a church we would ever live for your glory. From, from the smallest of things we do to the most important. God, may we seek to live in such a way that others may see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. So Lord, would you help us to glorify you by how we love one another and serve one another in this body here at Hope Community Church. May our attitude towards one another be that of brotherly love and true harmony. May there be peace and unity here. Lord, I want to pray for the elders of this church, that they may be men who are above reproach, who can provide this example of what it looks like to follow the Lord Jesus. And Lord, I want to pray for the whole body here, that we would be the little Christ in our neighborhoods and our jobs and the very homes and families we live with. So Lord, as we prepare for a, another week, Lord, help us to live by faith, remembering your promises, remembering heaven, remembering the love that you have for us in Christ. And we pray this all in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.